Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to discuss ongoing diversity programming with our member institutions as well as the larger veterinary profession. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at AAVMC. I am very excited about today's show. Today is the last, um, this is the last show of 2017 and we have a total rock star guest for you today. So today's show is about institutional change, diversity and inclusion. And I am delighted to welcome Dr. Christine Stanley, Vice President and Associate Provost for Diversity Emerita at Texas A&M University. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited, so excited to have you on the show. I am a total groupie. That I'm very excited. This season, I've had like two of my favorite, favorite sheroes on the on the podcast. So I'm really, really excited. So thank you so much for making time to come on today's show. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, we are talking about institutional change um, and how to drive change related to diversity and inclusion um, at the Colleges of Veterinary Medicine or at your individual um, site of employment or practice. Um, so before we get started, I'd love for Dr. Stanley to share a little bit about her background and um, where she's been and what she's doing and what she's done. So Dr. Stanley? So I'll try to be, um, I'll try to be brief. So. Um... Um, I'm Jamaican-American. Um, I grew up in um, Jamaica, um, emigrated to the United States in 1980. So I've been here um, uh, quite a while. Um, I'm a naturalized citizen. Um, I've worked at uh, uh, two um, land-grant research universities, the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio from 1990 to 1999, and returned back to Texas A&M in the fall of 1999 on the faculty. So when I say returned back, um, to Texas A&M. This is where I did my uh, graduate work, um, did, did my PhD here in 1990, and um, did my undergraduate work at Prairie View A&M University, which is a historically black college as part of the Texas A&M University system. So it's like coming home back to Texas. I guess you want me to focus on a little bit on uh, my role, my recent role for eight years and two months, but who's counting as Vice <laughs> President and Associate Provost for Diversity from 2009 to 2017. And I'm also a tenured full professor in the College of Education and Development where I've returned now. Um, very exciting to re-engage um, in research issues again, or as a colleague of mine said, geez, you never really left. But um, as far as diversity and inclusion um, and change, I believe Lisa, when you and I talked about this podcast, you wanted me to talk a little bit about some of the changes that I've seen in my time here at A&M. Actually, I've observed quite a few, you know, looking back over the years, even when I was a graduate student here and now on the faculty and as an administrator, one of the things um, that I have seen here that we've been able to document and assess using a very ambitious diversity plan that was uh, vetted and approved in 2010. And um, what I've experienced, um, and know about change as it relates to diversity and inclusion efforts that it takes time. I mean, if we're talking about universities, which are like systems and um, it requires accountability at various levels, whether we're talking about the chancellor, the president, the provost, the dean, 
the department chair or head, faculty, staff, and students, and numerous other university stakeholders. And I think it's probably naive to think that um, any one person um, entitled leadership for diverse and inclusion efforts has a sole responsibility for change. So seeing a lot of changes over the years. Are we there yet? Um, no. Um, you know, but hopefully we're uh, learning from those changing and learning from our our continued challenges and paving um, the way forward. And we can point to various units on campus that have really, um, really made a difference and have really um, um, encompassed deep change. And one of them actually um, is our own College of Veterinary Medicine Biomedical Sciences here at AM. I can't say enough about um, that college and some of the things that have that they've accomplished there under the leadership um, of Eleanor Green and Kenita Rogers. Great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the kind of um, uh, maybe strategies for driving change. You have this university plan, um, so you kind of know where you want to go. Um, what are some of the things that worked for you in terms of um, helping people understand um, what the big goal is and getting them to kind of share that vision and move in that direction? One of the things that I think has been uh, a key lever in um, um, in our diversity efforts, at least from from my view, and I had one I had a ha ha moment about maybe two years ago when I came across an article, um, and I would highly recommend it. Um, the person who wrote the article, the piece is Joseph Simplicio, S I M P L I C I O, and his um, basically Joseph Simplicio was was writing about um, his understanding of a university's culture, and so the aha moment that I had was, uh, you know, is really getting to understand the university culture, which I think is one of the key change levers. Um, our universities um, are guardians of the culture. I mean, if we talk about veteran faculty members, staff members and others at the institution who have a lot of um, longevity and seniority who stand sometimes and watch over the status quo, if you will. And many of these individuals, you know, sometimes when change efforts are, in are initiated, um, uh, don't always um, move at the pace that, at the pace that you would like. And especially when you're talking about change that affects people's values and beliefs sometimes, it points for a complex mix for leadership. So what I've learned from my 16 years in university administration and eight of that as um, vice president for diversity is that you have to understand and work with the university's culture. And one of the key, another key uh, change um, lever is individual leadership. I can't say that enough. And giving, given the divisiveness, behavior, and attitude that we're seeing in our country right now in the world, I think we have to uh, own diversity and inclusion as a moral imperative, as a key to recognizing and managing conflict. And I don't think it's enough to be a bystander, remain silent in non-threatening uh, situations where you can respond or act. And I think another key change Another key change level uh, lever is also um, institutional policies and procedures, looking for areas where sometimes our spouse rhetoric about valuing diversity and inclusion do not always align with our institutional artifacts. Mm. So. 
that's a that, that the 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 piece on policies and practices i think um certainly really resonates right now in this moment that we're having hashtag me too and and um issues around harassment and how do people report whether they report how do they report and how um folks find um ways of handling those types of of situations um that are you know rooted in so much conflict mm -hmm. sure so within that kind of issue of kind of understanding institutional culture how do how did you gain buy-in um for some of the initiatives that you advanced well um one of the things um I've been thinking about, a lot, I'm reflecting on this a lot lately, um, especially since I've returned um, to the faculty now full time, is because people have asked me this, you know, and some people have actually said, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in the eight years that you, um, that you were in this role, um, and I've been thinking about this too, is, and I would offer this, is cultivating strategic relationships on as well as off campus, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of, building coalitions and um another aha moment that i that i came across too and i just finished writing a piece uh for publication about this is i'm i'm a strong believer in uh john cotter's work on organizational change and the way he frames things around those eight stages so um and one of that you know he talks about building guiding coalitions Mm -hmm. When I say strategic relationships on campus is, you know, um, working with um, deans across the colleges, engaging and empowering others to learn from each other and learn from best practice, whether, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, a college of veterinary medicine might uh, benefit from something that's happening in the College of Education or the College of Engineering or, or the College of Medicine. So. Um, building coalitions um, um, is very important. How does that off-campus piece work? The off-campus piece, uh, funny you should mention that because one, the one example that I could think of right top of my head is I remember I was two years into my role when um, Eleanor Green called me um, from the vet school and she said, you know, Christine, um, uh, you know, we've got to get this school more diverse than it is. and um, we have an HBCU within our own system, and I would like to um, engage in a relationship with them. And someone told me that, that that's your alma mater. Would you be willing to accompany me and members of my leadership team to that campus to meet with the president um, and the provost? And I said, sure. We went down to Purview, which is um, about a 45-minute drive from the College Station campus. And we met with the president, the provost, and some of the deans and some faculty members. And I'll never forget this because sitting around that conference table, during the conversation, um, I, um, one of their faculty members looked at um, looked at us, and Kanita tells the story too. And she says, "Yeah, that lady, she just got her finger and she pointed us, and she said, you know, why should we send our students?'" to your campus and to study veterinary medicine um, because, because over the years, we've heard stories in terms of how they were not always treated very well. So you, you need to um, treat them well. And um, so we listened and we had a really 
uh, good conversation, but I share this story because Kanita and Eleanor came back and they heard it. It didn't get defensive, but they listened. And they worked to build relationships with um, Prairie View. Long story short, where I think um, early this year or last year, our College of Veterinary Medicine Biomedical Sciences now has um, an agreement with Prairie View that they signed off on, um, you know, to encourage students mm -hmm. to come either to the, co uh, the college for graduate school or to, um, or to apply to vet school. And we've had We've had a couple of students that have come to our College of Veterinary Medicine um, and were successful and have graduated and are still engaged with um, the college. So building relationships on and off campus, um, I think is one of the key. I think another thing leaders can do too is uh, meeting people, faculty, staff, and students uh, where they are about diversity inclusion. And you're not gonna get far for buy-in if you push people in a very confrontational way. So um, I think those are some of the keys that have been, um, that I've found uh, very successful. So what are some of those ways that you've engaged um, faculty and students? Have you had listening sessions or town halls or what are some of the things that, that you've done over the years to kind of really um, find ways of, of giving individuals voice and really kind of listening to them? Well, through our diversity plan, which is focused around three goals, um, it's accountability, climate and equity. I mean, we have uh, 23 units across campus, units being defined as the academic colleges and administrative uh, units that have to submit annual reports every year through my office to the President's Council on Climate and Diversity. So in those ANA reports, I get to read and learn about um, different activities that are occurring across campus, whether it's related to faculty recruitment, faculty retention, staff and students. And in those reports, as well as uh, conversations with deans and uh, with other administrative leaders on campus is learning what people are doing more intentionally to engage uh, their units around climate efforts. Some of these may be intern intergroup dialogue. Um, for example, the College of Veterinary Medicine have been very successful in the last couple of years are being very intentional about um, understanding their conflict management culture, um, where they have trained faculty um, and staff um, in mediation um, uh, in conflict management strategies. So they've been very intentional about this because they're really trying to, to work at changing their culture. So again, different things that are happening um, across campus in student affairs, um, they're getting ready to uh, start modules to engage um, our student leaders, for example, in terms of those skills um, our president had a retreat on uh, our former provost, uh, let's see, about a year ago when we were, um, diversity is what was one of the items on the agenda and the deans were there, all the vice presidents, and we had a really uh, deep conversation about some of the things that we need to move forward on if we're really serious about effective change, particularly around policies, policies and um, procedures. Mm. Mm, sure. So um, 
we've talked a bit about all of the some of the positive things that you can kind of do to kind of cultivate communication and and buy-in um one of the things i think that that um has changed certainly over my short career in this particular space is what pushback looks like um because i think it looks like different things depending on the group um what are some of the ways that people maybe kind of push back on on change in general that you've kind of experienced, but also specific to this type of um, this type of work? Um, I think pushback can take um, can take many forms. Um, you know, some people you can see pushback in the form of disengagement. You see pushback in terms of uh, faculty, staff, and student behaviors that work at odds with um, institutional diversity efforts. You can see, for example, pushback in terms of expressive activities, like what we're seeing with conservative speakers um, trying to, um, um, what I would call, infiltrate college campuses. And you can see pushback in terms of just leaving diversity efforts to chance, you know, oh, well, that's not my thing. Um, it's not my area of expertise. Somebody else will be taking charge of that. So, um, and I think uh, you move past, past the pushback, I think, by working with some degree with the choir, if you will, those already on board. And I think also those who are what I would call um, uh the power brokers on campus or power brokers in our college and our departments and those and the power brokers are people that i would call those faculty staff or administrators who are respected um who people respect and will follow because they are trusted um so i think that's one way of um working past uh, the pushback our former provost uh karen watson um addressed the aavmc leadership um academy group last week in our college and um uh she um uh her term for power brokers i believe she calls this the bell cow the one who uh the one who other um other cows in the pasture will follow um if you will you know but i think um having said all that i don't think um i don't get discouraged with pushback in fact um I expect it to some degree. I mean, if you're leading change efforts and if you're leading change efforts around diverse and inclusion, as I said earlier, where for a lot of people, some of the issues um, are at the, um, the core of their own personal values and beliefs. Um, I think, I mean, expect it to some degree. And to me, uh, if you're not encountering pushback, then I don't think you're leading change or, you know, or you're leading it um, um, very deeply. So I think, um, I think that's part of change. Yeah, sure, sure. So with the big plan um, that was advanced at Texas A&M and certainly is still, um, those efforts are still underway. One of the challenges I think that I hear from our members is defining change. I mean, of defining success rather. Um, what does success look like? Um, and, um, you know, in terms of representative diversity, sometimes it's it's easier for folks to say well you know this is kind of what parity looks like and um when we compare um this against our state um demographics or national demographics but um how did um how did you and texas a m define success what would success look like 
you know, that's a, that's a very interesting question. And I get asked that a lot. And I remember, um, um, and here's how I answer it. And I'm not sure I'm going to answer it in a way that's probably um, sufficient uh, for people who are, who are trying to look for um, a certain level of precision. So um, one of my colleagues in higher ed who studies uh, campus climates across colleges and universities in this country, one of the things that she says is, uh, you know, um, um, and I believe this too, is make no mistake, we have to pay attention to our numbers, okay? So we have to look and look at our numbers, whether we talk about faculty, staff, and students, and say, you know, um, we don't look very diverse. And if we're talking about numbers in terms of how universities are federally mandated to keep track of race, ethnicity, and gender, right? So numbers tell us something um, in terms of diversity, but it's not just the numbers because it's not just race, ethnicity, and gender. I mean, because we're talking about how human beings um, define themselves. Um, um, there's a lot of um, race, ethnicity, and gender, but intersectionally in terms of class, we're talking about religion, political affiliation, sexual orientation. We're talking about nationality, culture, physical learning ability, and the list goes on and on and on, right? So, so for me, uh, success, is, success is when individuals can come to our institutions and really enjoy and feel a sense of belonging at our institutions, mm. um, no matter how they define themselves. Um, so for me, that's one, what's one measure of success. So essentially what I'm talking about here, um, you know, um, is our campus climate is our unit climate. So I'm more concerned about if somebody leaves uh, my department or my college and leaves, you know, feeling that they were mistreated or um, they had an experience here um, that made them so unhappy that they would tell people outside of the department or the college, look, you know, I would really consider um, going to that place because that place, you know, I was not treated well there. I mean, no, I mean, I know there's a lot of variables in terms of all that stuff, but I mean, but for me, that's one measure of success of success, how people experience our campus environments, broadly speaking. I think another measure of success is, is accountability at all layers and, um, and accountability, not just individuals entitled leadership, but our own individual account, I mean, our own, um, we need to be more accountable for each other and, um, and for everyone you know, and, um, and break the silence. That's just so, uh, the silence can be so thick sometimes, you know, it's hard to get through. Yeah. So again, I don't know if, I'm not sure if I answered your question precisely, but, um, you know, success, I get asked that. So how do we know we're there? You know, how do we know we're arrived? Uh, you know, are our campuses, if we think the state of Texas, for example, I use our state data, the last census data that I look for the state of Texas, um, Hispanic Americans in the state of Texas are 38%. African Americans, if we're talking about race and ethnicity, African Americans 
are um, 12%. If we look at our institutional data, you know, in terms of those numbers, do we reflect that? No. Will we ever reach that? I don't know, because we're talking ab about other nuances, like, um, you know, if we're talking about the undergraduate level, and if we're talking about, you know, students that are college ready coming out of high school, that's a whole nother area there too, that we need to trouble some more. So, so you see what I'm saying? So it's not as easy in terms of defining success. These, I mean, these issues are very complex. So what I say is when we as institutions can do a better job of creating um, an organizational climate, um, I think some of the other things that I mentioned in terms of the numbers, uh, you know, over the years will steadily improve. So that's my answer to that. Yeah, I think that's a fair, that's a fair answer. I think that it's, it's um, I think that many people working on these issues, diversity and inclusion are looking for kind of the magic there. Yep. Wherever there is, are we there yet? Yep. <laughs> or will we ever get there? And um, sometimes the answer is, I don't know, it's about the journey. Um, and other times, um, you know, it may be more um, clearly or finite definition, um, uh, you know, or, or way of kind of seeing, yeah, well, we're, we're closer to wherever that magic there is. So, so as people are trying to get to the magic there, um, how do you hold them accountable? I think um, one of the things um, that we have found that seems to be making um, a difference is one layer of accountability is getting individuals to think about diversity very seriously in terms of how we think about research, how we think about teaching, how we think about service, which are often the three, um, the three pillars that um, most universities use in terms of holding um, particularly faculty accountable. So within research, teaching and service, you know, and we talked about this at, the, um, um, at a president's and dean's retreat uh, a year ago, is how do we hold ourselves accountable for making sure um, that diversity is taking serious? What are we doing our part? I remember um, our provost, um, as I said earlier, you know, about sometimes our espoused values don't always align with our artifacts. So for example, if I say I want my department to be more diverse along many dimensions, then, then my question is then, what are we doing that contributes to that or inhibits that? Mm -hmm. If I say that we want more of our veterinary graduates to be able to serve and work in diverse and global settings, then what are we doing in our courses and curricula to realize that goal? Um, you know, and as Carter would say in, in, um, in his research model about organizational change, then where's our sense of urgency to do this? So one layer of accountability um, um, is um, increase getting people to take this more seriously in terms of annual reporting, um, reporting on what they're doing. Another layer of accountability too is um, policies and practices for faculty. Um, one department in engineering, in fact, it's electrical engineering, uh, you could probably find it um, on their website. I was pleasantly surprised uh, earlier this year when the provost said to me, take a look at this, 
um, where she showed me where faculty in the Department of Electrical Engineering um, made a decision that on their annual performance evaluations for faculty that they were going to add diversity as one of the dimensions where faculty um, are going to be evaluated for. So diversity, you know, in terms of how faculty um, work in terms of recruiting students in the department, um, how they retain students, how they recruit other faculty. And in, in, in any case, they defined through a conversation amongst themselves what the criteria that they were going um, to be judged against, um, if you will, or to be held um, um, accountable for. We had a conversation um, in a president um, and dean's retreat. I don't know if this is going to come to fruition or not, but we had the conversation about looking at, and again, we're talking about faculty here um, still, looking at policies and procedures for faculty in terms of what's required for tenure and promotion. Um, looking at research and looking at teaching, uh, you know, there are faculty that are really working um, to really do some inclusive things in terms of their courses and curricula. For example, um, uh, our College of Veterinary Medicine has a cultural competency component um, um, that they developed. I mean, so that's one layer um, in terms of accountability. And some departments are thinking about in terms of how they do um, admissions procedures, you know, at the departmental level and looking and hold themselves accountable for diversity efforts there. So um, those are some of the, the accountability efforts that are happening in some units that I can point to um, on our campus that might be helpful for others. Sure, sure. It sounds like with some of that, it, it, it is um, a ground up willingness to kind of hold themselves accountable, not just a here's, <laughs> here's the rule, now go do it. Um, I think it's both, you know, um, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, um, the diversity plan, I mean, um, accountability is one of the pillars, but also, um, and you're right, um, some of it too is grounds up, you know, where individuals are really having conversations. So you talked about pushback earlier. So um, um, when I was in the position in my office, uh, you know, when I would get a call from a dean or a vice president or a department head or chair, for example, you know, asking me for, <coughs> well, geez, can you help me with this in my department? I'm thinking about doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, one of the things that I would often do is, and I said, okay, if you're thinking about doing this, here's some models that you ought to be aware of. Here's some individuals that can help you to think about that more deeply and whatever, you know. So it's giving, giving leaders and the tools, the resources, you know, um, that can help them. And one of the, uh, um, the accountability efforts that has helped because faculty see that we're serious about this is that our diversity plan every year, thanks to um, our provost and our president, uh, our former provost and our president uh, who initiated this, is that there's $1 million set aside each year to reward units that are making, um, that are making progress in any areas of the diversity plan. Oh, well, that's, there's some skin in the game. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So we have a question that was sent in uh, um, before the show. So I'm gonna read the question. 
Mm -hmm. uh, from one of our institutions. Once an institution has made a commitment to organizational shift towards deepening inclusivity and diversity, what are some practical ways to support and move those forward through policy, particularly policy that mostly impacts faculty and staff? where we see many more resources. There are more resources um, that are already kind of going towards student programming and how to do that type of thing. So we're really kind of, this question is, is more focused on how do we um, support and move uh, faculty. Um, you know, faculty, myself included, we are an interesting bunch um, and we're an interesting, um, the faculty culture, um, is interesting in the sense that you know to get things to get things to move uh, you know is engaging people in dialogue i mean getting i mean really engaging um in the difficult dialogues around um the work that's before us and what it's going to take and i say that because if you don't have those dialogues and developing a vision together of where you want your department to go with respect to diversity um, and inclusion that I don't think you're going to get very far in terms of your efforts. So again, um, so again, you got to have those, you got to have those difficult dialogues um, um, and then going from there. But I also think though, starting off with some things that um and cotter talks about this in terms of celebrating um you know the short wins if you will and a short win you know might be might be coming up for example with some um guidelines around um how we're going to engage with with each other um in the department to to really set um a climate of inclusion uh for example Another way too, in terms of um, getting things after um, done after you've had those dialogues, is really sitting down and said, "Okay, you know, looking at our department, we have a position opening that's coming up um, soon. What are we looking for in our next colleague, and how do we make sure that we build a diverse pool of candidates um, as possible? Um, how do we nurture?" Um, uh, particularly graduate students who are interested um, in faculty careers um, to really think about faculty or even ones that have moved on to come back um, to the department after a couple of years. So I'm not sure if that's what um, the person was asking the, who was who posed that question if that's what um, um, if that's what they meant. But I mean, you have to start start incrementally and build things um, over time. But you got to get buy-in and you got to get ownership. And I think co-creating what you're trying to do um, is helpful um, um, in the long run. My own department a couple of years ago um, engaged um, uh, in a retreat setting where faculty and um, staff primarily work together to come up with, for example, um, I believe they called it um, um, I think a diversity inclusion statement for the department um, um, that's now shared publicly where anybody, you know, who is thinking about joining the department will see that. Um, so I think it's, um, so again, you know, these things are gonna take time, but I would work um, incrementally and use, use 
the power broker if there's one or two or several in the department to engage those individuals in those conversations as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've referenced the, the Cotter um, change model um, a few times. Um, I'm a huge fan of Cotter myself, and I just kind of wanted to do a, a quick review for folks that may not be familiar with um, that change model. There are eight steps. Um, and they are increased urgency, building a guiding team, getting the right vision, communicating for buy-in, empower action, create those short-term wins that you just referenced. Um, don't let up. So this is about the sustaining part and making it stick. So in terms of those last two pieces of Cotter's um, change model, um, you have now gone back to your, your department. You're back on faculty. You stepped away from um, the position, um, the, the leadership position um, at the university level. So um, what about sustaining change? Um, Texas A&M certainly has um, done a lot and certainly we look to um, the institution, not just the vet school, but really kind of looking um, more globally at the work that has happened and, and gone on there at so many levels. Um, so what do you see on the horizon? And, and um, as you now kind of enter your, your, this next chapter for you, how do you see the institution sustaining change? Um, that's a, um, a, a great question. In fact, uh, one of the, the candidates that interviewed um, for my position um, asked me that very same question um, too as well. Um, I think one of the things that I would hope, and I think um, one of the ways of sustaining change is um, constantly monitoring what you're doing and I think assessing what you're doing, um, assessing your efforts. I mean, how do you know that what you're doing is actually um, is actually um, impacting change? And I think adapting um, new strategies, and and I think never losing sight of accountability. You know, when uh, when our former provost um, and she's a brainchild, you know, for the diversity plan. When when um, when we started to look at previous diversity plans that we had at Texas A&M and where this one, this current one that we have that was instituted in 2010, one of the things that we kept hearing from faculty, staff, and students is who's, who's holding who accountable. Faculty were pointing um, you know, at their department chair or deans or the department chair um, or, or the heads were pointing at the dean, the dean was pointing at the provost and you can see up along the, the um, administrative chain. So, never losing sight of accountability, but also remembering individual accountability. And I think sustaining change over time, particularly leading diversity and um, inclusion change efforts, I think, um, I'm gonna be honest, it can be exhausting work, especially with all um, that we have discussed so far, but I think you can also sustain, sustain change by working with allies on and off campus you know, and hope that when you, when you do have systemic changing, uh, systemic change occurring um, in your culture is also thinking about leadership succession, because that's one of the keys, you know, um, people always say, well, you know, how long, I mean, we have a great dean, we have a great department chair, but you know, when that person leaves, what's going to happen, you know, so the true test, I think, of any change efforts is when leaders come and go for whatever reason, is that whatever you have developed in that um, in that organizational culture, you know, it becomes part of um, 
um, part of the artifact, part of what you've created, uh, you know? Um, so now you have people who share the vision and the sense of urgency, and hopefully it will be there um, for years to come for other faculty and staff and students. So I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions I didn't include on my question list before. So what kinds of um, books do or media, whether they're, um, I'm a huge, clearly a huge podcast person. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but um, but certainly, you know, literature on this topic um, in terms of leading change with respect to diversity and inclusion. What kinds of, um, you know, what have you read that have been has been really kind of earth shaking things? What kinds of media would you recommend folks really kind of look into, dive into? and um, you know, put on their bookshelf or plug in in their car. <laughs> oh, wow. Jeez, uh, there's so many, so many books that I like. Uh, I'm trying to think here. Um, okay, let me, let me ask for this way. If I think about course and curricular change, one of the books that was very helpful for me over the years and helpful for me to engage um, with faculty um, in particular around uh, uh, teaching and diversity issues is um, Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice. Oh, yeah. um, uh, that's a good book if we're talking about courses and curricula. Huh, if we're talking about um, faculty recruitment and retention in higher ed, just broadly speaking, um, wow, I'm trying to think here. Uh, maybe uh, Faculty Diversity by Joanne Moody. Um, I think that's uh, also helpful. If, we're, if we want to think about, learn more about institutions and culture um, and organizational culture, understanding conflict, um, um, my colleague who's the lead author on this book, um, Nancy Watson, um, Conflict Management and Dialogue in Higher Education, um, just came out this year. I would highly recommend that. Uh, and you know another book too that's uh, that's very helpful. One of our sociology professors here on campus, who's well known um, in studying race issues in higher education, um, um, and a nationally known uh, sociologist. His name is Joe Fagan, F-E-A-G-I-N, and his book on systemic racism. Uh, is very helpful for those who want to understand um, um, issues about um, specifically about race. But the teaching for diversity and social justice cuts across all um, human dimensions of diversity. Uh, those are some that come immediately to mind. All right, great. I have uh, just dropped the. Um, you can find um, Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice. Uh, I think that the publisher 
is, uh, I think it's Rutledge um, textbooks. I've just dropped that into our Facebook um, podcast page. So you can find that there. Um, I will post links to other, um, other books um, and resources on the podcast page as well. One of the, the, um, the podcasts that I've come to listen to on a regular basis is NPR's Code Switch, um, which really kind of delves into issues around diversity. Um, sometimes it's race, sometimes it's language, um, very often culture. There's some really interesting um, um, discussions about um, contemporary issues and diversity and inclusion. So um, I'll also put some, some posts there. So um, what change management advice would you give to a new dean? A new dean? Huh. Mm. One of the biggest things I learned in administration um, uh, that I can't say enough about is if you're leading change efforts, um, just leading change in general, not necessarily only about diversity and inclusion, but if you're leading change efforts is leading change strategically be strategic about what you're doing. You can't be all things to all people and um, you can't accomplish everything. You know, I remember one of our former presidents whom we all know, um, Robert Gates that, uh, that served here as president and went on to Washington DC. Um, one of the things when he came here as our president, um, you know, he looked at our Vision 2020 document that was created in the early 1990s, and there are 12 imperatives for Texas A&M, uh, you know, um, to be um, 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 a leading university. And he looked at those 12 imperatives, and he said, you know, we can't do all 12 all at one time, but he focused on three or four, and he said, this is what we're going to do. And this is going. This is what we're going to aim for. So I would offer that. And to me, that's leading strategically. Um, I think another thing to do is to think about as a um, as a leader. Um, if you're a new dean, is um, lead with a courageous heart. And I say that um, because just looking at, at what's happening um, around us in our society, in our world. Uh, you know, and our our college campuses, our microcosm, what's happening in our society, faculty, staff, and students, and particularly our students, they're seeing what's being played out um, around us, you know, and they're looking to higher education, broadly speaking, for us to help them make sense of what's happening in, um, in our society and world. So I think it's important for us to be as leaders to lead with a courageous heart and recognizing that decisions you're going to make, you're not going to please everybody. You know, one of the things um, that I've learned is, you know, if I'm able to sleep fairly good at night, uh, you know, um, after I make a decision, knowing that, you know, a couple people are not going to be, a couple people are going to be unhappy, but it's for the good of the organization and good of the organizational culture. And, um, and I think um, treat people the way you would want to be treated and um, treat people the way you want to be treated, always. 
And I think about that. Um, I think about that a lot. And I think about that, you know, um, um, in the context of uh, the leadership experiences that I've had, um, not only as a vice president, but, uh, you know, at the college level, at the department level over the years, uh, you know, so um, um, I would offer that. And if you're working through change efforts, make no mistake, change is going to raise fear in people. That's natural. I mean, the research tells you that it's going to create conflict, you know, but change can also lead to organizational growth and effectiveness. And it can make um, the organization being defined of a college or a department a better place. So that's what I would offer. And so one last question, because we have so many student leaders. Um, we have student, uh, student groups like Voice and Broad Spectrum, both of our um, diversity, uh, veterinary student diversity groups, and certainly um, a, a whole section of SAVMA, which is the student um, AVMA really kind of working on these issues. And, and oftentimes um, there are certainly some places where students feel like they're doing the heaviest of heavy lifts and driving change um, while at the bottom, right? Um, and so what advice would you give uh, to these young professionals um, who will be out in the workforce soon, but are kind of toiling in the, in the, the academic vineyard at the moment? Well, um... The, before I offer, give the advice, you know, I would say that one of the things that we can do, you know, as faculty and as, uh, administrators is to support those student organizations. And I say that because I remember uh, almost a year and a half ago, I had the opportunity to engage a couple of our um, veterinary students before I gave a talk to um, um, to um, a regional group of one of the um, AAs, uh, AAVMC in, I think, uh, at the University of Florida. Anyway, and I remember engaging a group of veterinary students, and some of them were engaged in those very organizations that you described. And one of the things that they said to me was, you know, um, they would like more faculty and um, more faculty and student support and engagement in, in, um, in the organization. You know, so even though even though those organizations um, were created for um, a reason to provide support for uh, certain groups of students who often feel marginalized, you know, I think the more we support them um, publicly, not just privately, I think um, is very helpful. So I'll say that. Now for the student leaders, uh, you know, who are going out there, you know, who are engaging in those groups, one of the things that I would say, uh, you know, and offer is is to really work to really work to um, to understand your own skill set around how you engage in dialogue with others and really work to to listen for perspective taking because i see a lot of people right now who are engaging you know in dialogues and conversations uh, you know who are um, who are coming at it and sometimes um, um, coming at, at a place and I, you know, um, and I get it, but oftentimes not well thought out and, um, and there's um, a lot of emotions um, that are with those um, ideas and whatever. So I say that to really work, if you want, really want people to engage um, and to listen, then really work to understand and yourself and others in the process 
of engaging in dialogue if you want to bring about change. That's good advice. Good advice for not just students, but for all of us. Yep. Yeah. So as we get ready to draw this uh, episode of diversity and inclusion on air to a close, my parting question is, so what will you be working on now? Um, well, I, I'm, um, um, I just finished a manuscript looking at what we have learned um, and assessed about uh, the change efforts around diversity that we've seen in, um, in the last uh, six years of engaging with this new diversity plan. So I've just finished that. I'm also working um, uh, with another colleague of mine um, looking at how do we how do we look at uh, change efforts with respect to um, leaders um, around big change efforts, not necessarily diversity. So we hope to interview some, some key leaders on college and university campuses around that and have them reflect on what they're doing um, and maybe in engaging with us in a conversation and hopefully documenting some of that stuff so other people can learn from um, and hopefully share those share those best practices. And um, a couple of colleagues of mine at the University of Maryland and, and others were convening in January to with the president there to look at diversity inclusion efforts more broadly at college and universities. And um, I'm not sure it's going to come out of those dialogues yet, but um, um, they're engaging what they're calling thought leaders around the country um, to, to think about the work that we do in college and universities, particularly predominantly uh, research universities and how do we move those efforts um, in a more intentional way. Exciting stuff. So we will definitely be on the lookout and uh, I will definitely be sharing um, some of those publications as they come out. So good luck to you. Thank you. All right. So that is going to uh, wrap this episode of diversity and inclusion on air. Thank you everyone this year um, for uh, all of your support of this podcast. We look forward to coming back and finishing up our third season beginning in January. So um, with that, we will wish you all season's greetings, happy holidays and an early happy new year. And we will see you next year. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and happy holidays, everybody. Bye. Bye.